We are back. It's April 25th, 2022, and we're in the Cedar Creek house awaiting the rain, and we have our power back, which is good. I'm going to be reading a story, a first-time story, from a collection called Pastoralia by George Saunders, who is an author uh, mentioned in these blurbs alongside Flannery O'Connor, uh, it says here, the bold successor to Thomas Pynchon and Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, there's a number of others, Nathaniel West, um, John Kennedy Toole, Dennis Johnson. The, these are people who occupy um, Stephen Wright, the comedian, I guess, Stephen Wright. Anyway, these are folks who occupy a fiction space that I frequented or have frequented for many years. So I feel like this is it's inevitable that I get into George Saunders. I feel like I've even been recommended his writing before. And it wasn't until I listened to a story of his on the New York the New Yorker fiction podcast uh, where they read short an author chooses a short story to read and then they discuss it. They have a discussion before and after. And it was a great story. It was very touching, and it was very funny, and it was ridiculous, but also uh, poignant and, and on to the brinking, uh, the brink of heartbreaking, uh, some deep sadness, but also very silly. So I think I'm going to like these stories, and I hope you do too. The End of Furpo in the World The boy on the bike flew by the chink's house and the squatty body's house, and the house where the dead guy had rotted for five days, remembering that the chink had once called him nasty. The squatty body had once called the cops when he'd hit her cat with a lug nut on a string. The chick in the dead guy's house had once asked if he, Cody, ever brushed his teeth. Someday when he completed the invention of his special miniaturizing ray, he would shrink their houses and flush them down the shitter while in tiny voices all three begged for some sophisticated mercy. But he would only say, Sophisticated? When were you ever sophisticated to me? And from the toilet bowl they would say, Well, yes, you're right. We were pretty mean. Flush us down. We deserve it. But no, at the last minute he would pluck them out and place them on his lunchbox so he could send them on secret missions, such as putting hideous boogers of assassination in Lester Finn's thermos if Lester Finn ever asked him in civics why his rear smelled like hot cotton with additional crap Klingons. It was a beautiful sunny day in the aerobics class that the wreck had let out and cars were streaming out of the parking lot with sun glinting off their hoods, and he rode along on the sidewalk racing the cars as they passed. Here was the low-hanging willow where you had to duck down here was the place with the tilty sidewalk square that served as a ramp when you jerked hard on the handlebars, which he did, and the crowd went wild, and the announcers in the booth above the willow shook their heads, saying, Wow, he takes that jump like there's no tomorrow, while them other racers fret about it like some kind of tiny crying babies. Were the Dahlmeyers home? Their gray car was still in the driveway. He would need to make another lap. Yesterday he had picked up a bright red goalie pad and all three Dahlmeyers had screamed at him. Not that pad, Cody, you dick. We never use those pads in the driveway because they get scuffed, you rectum. Those are only for ice. 
Were you born a rectal shit brain, or did it take special rectal shit brain lessons? In rectal shit brain lessons, did they teach you how to ruin everybody's things? Well, yes, he had ruined a few Dahlmeyer things in his life. And he had, yes, pounded a railroad spike in a good new volleyball. He had, yes, secretly scraped a ski with a nail. He had, yes, given Dahlmeyer dog Rudy a cut on its leg with a shovel, but that had been by accident. He'd thrown the shovel at a rosebush, and stupid Rudy had walked in front of it. And the Dahlmeyers had snatched away the goalie pad and paraded around the driveway, making an, the nose hole sound. And when he tried to laugh to show he was a good sport, he made the nose hole sound for real, and they totally cracked up. And Zane Dahlmeyer said, why didn't he take his trademark nose hole sound on Broadway? so thousands could crap their pants laughing. And Eric Dahlmeyer said, hey, if only he had like 50 different size nose holes that each made different sound, then he could play songs. And they laughed so hard at the idea of him playing songs on Broadway on his 50 different size nose holes that they fell to the driveway, thrashing their idiotic Dahlmeyer limbs. Even Jenny, the baby Dahlmeyer, and ha ha ha, that had been a laugh. That had been so funny. He had almost gone around one, two, three, four, and smashed their cranial cavities with his off-brand gym shoes, which was another puzzling dilemmoid. Because why did he have arrows when every single Dahlmeyer, even Jenny, had the Nikes with the heat lights in the heel that lit up? Fewer cars were coming by now from the wreck. The ones that did were going faster, and he no longer tried to race them. Well, it would be revenge, sweet revenge, when he stuck the lozenge stolen from the woodshop up the Dahlmeyer's water hose, and the next time they turned the hose on, it exploded, and all the Dahlmeyers, even Dad Dahlmeyer, stood around in their nice tan pants, puzzling over it like them guys on Nova. And the Dahlmeyers were so stupid they would conclude that it had been a miracle and would call some guys from a science lab to confirm the miracle, and one of the lab guys would flip the wooden lozenge into the air and say to Dad Dahlmeyer, You know what? A very clever Einstein lives in your neighborhood, and I suggest that in the future you lock this hose up, because in all probability this guy cannot be stopped. And he, Cody, would give the lab guy a wink, and later, as they were getting into the lab van, the lab guy would say, Look, why not come live with us in the experimental space above our lab and help us discover some amazing compounds with the same science brain that apparently thought of this brilliant lozenge? Because frankly, when we lab guys were your age, no way this lozenge concept was totally beyond us. We were just playing with baby toys and doing baby math. But you, oh, you're really something scientifically special. And when the Dahlmeyers came for a lab tour with a school group, they would approach him with their big, confident underwater watches and say, Wow, oh boy, had they ever missed the boat in terms of him. Sorry. They were so very sorry. What was this beaker for? How did this burner work? Was it really true that he had built a whole entire T-Rex from scratch? and energized it by taming the miraculous power of cosmic thunder? And down in the basement, the T-Rex would rear up its ugly head and want to have a Dahlmeyer snack. 
but using his special system of codes, pounding on a heat pipe a different number of times for each alphabet letter, he would tell the T-Rex, No, no, no. Don't eat a single Dahlmeier. Although, why not lift Eric Dahlmeier up just for fun on the tip of your tremendous green snout and give him a lesson in what kind of power those crushing jaws would have if he, Cody, pounded out on the heat pipe, kill, kill, kill. Pedaling wildly now, he passed into the strange and dangerous zone of three consecutive Monte Vistas, and inside of each lived an old wop and a dago tree. And sometimes in the creepy trees there were menacing gorillas. He took pot shots at from the back, from the bike back, but not today. He was too busy with revenge to think about monkeys, and he was out into the light, coasting into a happier zone of forthright and elephant, elephantine Bueno Verdes that sat very honestly with the big open eyes that were their second-story windows. And in his mind as he passed, he said, Hello, hello, to the two elephants. And in turn, they said to him in kind, Dumbo voices, Hey, Cody. Hey, Cody. The block was shaped something like South America, and as he took the tight turn that was Cape Horn, he looked across the field to his small yellow house, which was neither Monte Vista nor Bueno Verde, but predated the subdivision and smelled like cat pee and hamburger blood and had recently been christened by Mom's boyfriend, Daryl, that dick, the house of Furpo, Furpo being the, world, the word Daryl used to describe anything he, Cody, did that was bad or dorky. Sometimes Mom and Daryl tried to pretend Furpo was a lovey-dovey term by tossing his hair when they said it. But other times they gave him a poke or pinch, and sometimes when they thought he couldn't hear, they whispered very darkly and meanly to each other, Furp attack in progress. And he would go to his room and make the nose hole sound in his closet after which they would come in and fine him a quarter each, a quarter for each nose hole sound they thought they had heard him make, which was often many, many more than he had actually really made. Sometimes at night in his room, Mom babied him by stroking his wide, big head and saying he didn't have to pay all the quarters he owed for making the nose hole sound. But other times she said if he didn't knock it off and lose a few pounds, how was he ever going to get a date in junior high? Because who wanted to date a big chubby nose hole snorter? And then he couldn't help it. It made him nervous to think of junior high. And he made the nose hole sound. And she said, very funny. I hope you're amusing your own self. Because you're not amusing my ass one bit. The Dahlmeyer house now came into sight. The Dahlmeyer car was gone. It was go time. The decisive butt-kicking he was about to give the Dahlmeyer hose would constitute the end of Furpo in the world, and all, including Ma, would have to bow down before him, saying, Wow, 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 do we ever stand corrected in terms of you? How could someone, Furpo, hatch and execute such a daring, manly plan? The crowd was on its feet now, screaming his name, and he passed the Chink's house again. Here was the driveway down which he must turn to cross the street to the Dahlmeyer's, but then, oh crap, he was going too fast and missed it, and the announcers in the booth above the willow gasped in pleasure at his sudden decisive decision to swerve across the newly sodded lawn of the squatty body's house. 
His bike made a trough in the sod and went humph over the curb. And as the white car struck him, the boy and the bike flew together in a high cosmic arc across the street and struck the oak on the opposite side with such violence that the bike wrapped around the tree and the boy flew back into the street. Arr, arr, Daryl will be pissed and say, Cody, why are you bleeding like a stuck pig, you little shit? There was something red wrong with his arrows. At Payless, when they bought the arrows, Mom said, if you squirm once more, you're going to be face down on this carpet with my hand whacking your big fat ass. Daryl will say, I buy you a good bike and what do you do? You ruin it. Ma will come up with a dish towel and start swiping at the blood and Daryl will say, don't ruin that dish towel. He made his bed, let him sleep in it. I'll hose him off in the yard, a little shivering won't kill him. He did the crime, let him do the time. Or Mom might throw a fit like the night he slipped and fell in the school play and Miss Phillips said, tell your mother, Cody, how you came to slip and fall during the school play so that everyone in the auditorium was looking at you instead of Julia who was at that time speaking her most important line. And Mom said, Cody, are you deaf? And Miss Phillips said, He slipped, because when I told him to stay out of that mop spot, did he do it? No, he did not. He walked right through it on purpose, and then down he went. Which is exactly what he does at home, Mom said. Sometimes I think he's wired wrong. And Miss Phillips said, Well... Today, Cody, you learned a valuable lesson, which is if someone tells you don't do something, don't do it, because maybe that someone knows something you don't from having lived a little longer than you. And Daryl said, or maybe he liked falling on his butt in front of all of his friends. Now a white-haired stick man with no shirt was bending over him, so skinny, touch, touch, touching him all over, like looking to see if he's wearing a bulletproof vest doing some very nervous mouth-breathing, with a silver cross hanging down, and around his nipples were sprigs of white hair. Oh, boy, oh, God, said the stick man. Say something, pal, can you talk? And he tried to talk, but nothing came, and tried to move, but nothing moved. Oh, God, said the stick man. Don't go, pal. Please say something. Stay here with me now. We'll get through this. What crazy teeth. What a stick man. The stick man's hands flipped around like nervous old lady hands in the movies where the river is rising and the men are away. What a holy roller. What a furpo. A holy roly furpo stick man with hairy nips and plus his breath smelled like coffee. Listen, God loves you, the stick man said. You're going. Okay, I see you're going, but look. Please don't go without knowing you are beautiful and loved, okay? Do you hear me? You are good. Do you know that? God loves you. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Oh, the freaking Furpo. Why can't he just shut up? If the stick man thought he, Cody, was good, he must be Furpo because he, Cody, wasn't good. He was Furpo. Mom had said so, and Daryl had said so, and even Mr. Dean in science had told him to stop lying the time he tried to tell about seeing the falling star. The announcers in the booth above the willow began weeping as he sat on Mom's lap and said he was sorry for having been such a furpo son. And Mom said, oh, thank you, thank you, Cody, 
for finally admitting it. That makes it nice. And her smile was so sweet, he closed his eyes and felt a sudden urge to sort of shake things out and, oh, Christ, dance. You are beautiful, beautiful, the stick man kept saying, long after the boy had stopped thrashing. God loves you. You are beautiful in his sight. And that's the end of the end of Furpo in the world. What a story. I think I am going to be very happy with this story collection. Uh, that story is so... Um, such a powerful examination of what it's uh, what's going on in a child's mind and what the world feels like when you're a kid and you're the center of the world as far as you can tell and man everything is just um there's there's vibrance and there's there's um just a really beautiful imagination and uh Wow, it's heartbreaking. It's such a sad thing to think about a kid having a... Just having to be a kid is hard. And if you are not in a place where you're... where you're affirmed uh, by... good Lord, by your mother and your... your family and... oof, that's, a hard, that's rough. But very funny also. A very funny way to think about being in the world. It reminded me very much of the way that we used to read the world when we were children. Uh, even with like not knowing the neighbors' names, but having having names for them. Um, anyway, I thought it was a good story, and, and ultimately very very sad. There's a blurb on the front cover of this story uh, from a quote or review from the Village Voice that says, Hilarious and heart-rending. And I think that tells it. So that was The End of Furpo in the World by George Saunders from the collection Pastoralia. Till next time. Thank you.